0: <coughs> Beginning in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are of the Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh, shall never or not be hurt by the second death. Shall we have a word of prayer together? Our gracious God and Father, speak to our heart today. We pray that we might go forth from here with that reassurance way down deep in our heart so beautifully shared. An assurance that can only come Entering the land of rest and promise. Help us to take that step. For it's in Christ's name. Amen. The letter to the Christians at Smyrna was a letter that would be written not just to a local church existing in the end of the first century but a letter that was written to all of God's people for all times, but especially to a group of God's people who would live from the first century to the third century and who would know cruelty and violence and sadism and persecution and suffering unlike any other group of Christians in all of history. This was truly an age of great suffering for the church. As we shared many of those things last week, and we talked about the suffering and the agony that Christians went through, and I even went to describe much of that suffering with you and the many forms of torture and punishment that they endured. It was interesting the reactions that we got. I reacted by feeling very very sorrowful, very sad to realize that Christians would have to go through such suffering. And I felt guilty, too, living in such a land with so much abundance. I felt convicted that we don't have to do that. We don't have to, in our day and age, see our children and our husbands and our wives and our loved ones not just humiliated, but cruelly tortured. I was saddened. But my sadness, and the sadness that I know came from many of you, as you expressed it to me, was quite different from the response of the people who lived during that period of time. Instead of sadness, they were full of joy. Instead of being anxious and feeling guilty, they were full of peace. They expressed their joy and their peace in singing and in praising God and in even thanking Him for the opportunities of suffering in His name. Remember the story of Polycarp that I shared at the end? And how the crowd was getting anxious and they were upset because some were coming to Christ and they cried out, Burn the Christians! Burn Polycarp! And they brought Polycarp into the arena. And there they secured Polycarp to the stake. And they got the the faggots around the stake. And as the crowd shot up a shout, they said, Burn him! And Polycarp looked at them and he said, Thank you, God. Thank you for the privilege of being able able to suffer in the name of Jesus. And as the... fire began to blaze around him. The record says that for, for a, some period of time, as he was burning, he sang songs and hymns and praises to God. Not only were these Christians fearless, their lives and their testimonies spoke of an inner joy and an inner peace that it's hard for us to imagine at that time. They seemed to be full of contentment and satisfaction, as if they were living in times of great prosperity and peace. Much so that the church or the people who saw the Christians at that time were so impressed by their, by their faith but also by their joy and by their happiness and their contentment, which none of them had, that they became Christians and were willing to go through the same persecution. It seemed like somebody forgot to tell them that times were hard. Somebody forgot to tell them that this is a tragedy and an awful thing. One man said, Tertullian, he said that if all the Christians had gone out of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire would have been severely weakened. That's how many Christians were becoming, or people were becoming Christians at that time. It was one of the greatest periods of growth in the history of the church. Now we would think that it would be just the opposite, that like in our day and age where there's so much freedom to preach the gospel, and the gospel goes out over the air and it goes out over the television, and just everybody exposed to the gospel. And yet it was at this period of time where people suffered the most horrendous agonies and atrocities ever committed against man that the Gospel prospered. They'd see somebody burning at the stakes singing hymns and they'd say, somehow, He's got something I want. And they would join Him. Account after account that I've read of how many were converted, brought to Christ, and were willing to walk right out of me and to suffer the same... Agonies, the same atrocities that one minute before or a few minutes before they were laughing and enjoying in a stadium. Amazing. It was as if these Christians looked forward to and anticipated with joy every day of their life and every suffering that they had to go through, even the suffering that would have come to death. Now, why? Why could they be looking forward with such joy and such peace? Well, Christ in His letter to the church at Smyrna, He stressed, first of all, the need for an eternal perspective. Secondly, He reminded them of the extraordinary wealth that awaited them in heaven or was reserved for them in heaven. Thirdly, He promised them the crown of life if they persevered unto death. But He never promised pie in the sky today. He gave them no hope that Good times were just ahead. In fact, he said, for ten more days, or we could say 200 more years, ten Roman emperors later, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have suffering. More cruel and more violent than what you've even experienced up to this time. And yet, so many of these Christians joyfully anticipated the next day as much as the next life. That's what concerns me and what makes me wonder. I can understand how they can joyfully anticipate the next life. That's what Christ was bringing out in the letter to the church at Smyrna. But how could they joyfully anticipate the next day? How how could they be so excited about facing lions tomorrow or being burned at the stake? And this is all documented. You can read uh, one book that's that's very good. is Fox's Book of Martyrs, documented. History or lessons taken from what the Antiochic fathers have said of suffering during that period of time. Why? Now, I know what sustained them in their suffering. The thought that they could look ahead and see the reward and see the joy. They could see the next life. That sustained them in their suffering, but more than sustained, they were simply not just resigned, but joyful. If they were just sustained, I could see them being burned up and just resigned to the thought that they were going to suffer for Christ. But instead of just being resigned, just being sustained, instead they seem to be abundantly satisfied with their sufferings, abundantly satisfied with their persecutions, looking forward to each day and each opportunity, each situation. Why? Perhaps we can understand their joy of abundant satisfaction. If we look at another book of Scripture written to Christians who had lost their, that joy and that abundance and that satisfaction. Another group of Christians who were threatening to turn back from the One who saved and who sustains them. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The entire book of Hebrews was written to warn of dangers and to encourage hearts of believers who were threatening to turn back. And in the very first part of the book, we're immediately introduced to their problem of neglecting their salvation. We're told that they were second-generation Christians. These were not first generation, but they had parents who were first generation Christians Christians who knew Christ, who knew the apostles, who knew them intimately. At that time they were just children and now they've grown and they've become full grown adults. A few of the apostles are still around. Many of them have been martyred. We're moving on toward the end of the church age. And they were thinking to themselves, What's the use of all this suffering? What's the use of keep on pressing in the name of Christ? Notice the kind of suffering they were enduring. In chapter 10 we read in verse 32, "...but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions and partly whilst ye became companions of them who were so used." For ye have had compassion on me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. The point of this was that these Jewish Christians, under their parents or as children with their parents during their formative years, had known what it was to be joyful in the midst of suffering, and now they lost that joy. They'd known what it was to to be joyful when their homes were taken away from and then when their social relationships were severed because of their baptism for Christ. They knew what it was that that, uh, the feelings of being laughed at and mocked at in a community that was antagonistic toward Christianity. But now they were saying, do I really have to go through all that? Do I really have to suffer all that? They were tired and fed up with Christianity and they were on the verge of giving up and going back. Going back into Judaism. The Jews were still strong. There were synagogues all over the ancient world and these Jewish Christians were saying to themselves, let's just go back. Let's forego the persecution. Let's go back and experience the joy and the happiness of a full life, an abundant life. The life that we once knew before our parents began to suffer so much. And as a result of the fact, they lost their joy for being Christians. They became embittered towards Christianity, toward their faith, toward their leaders. There was resentment and hardship. They didn't even want to meet together, we read in chapter 10, verse 24, that they forsake the assembling of themselves together. Some of them did. They were just dropping out right and left. If they were in Smyrna, I imagine they would have been the kind of person who would have said, I'll renounce Christ. They knew they were saved. But they also knew that it would have been a lot easier to say, I renounce Christ and get on with a program of enjoying life than to take a stand for Him and to glory in, in the sufferings in His name. In response to this, the author of the book of Hebrews sets out to show how much greater and more superior is Jesus Christ to what Judaism has to offer. The whole book is a book of contrast. Jesus Christ versus the angels. Jesus Christ versus Moses. Jesus Christ versus the, the high priest or the priesthood of Judaism. Everything that Christ is compared to, He's superior and greater in. He's more valuable. He's more able. He's more compar- he's more capable of giving what is needed to make life full and happy and meaningful. And in the light of this, the writer would go on and he would say, if you go and turn your back on Christ, greater consequences await you than even awaited your fathers who turned their back on Moses. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter three, Hebrews chapter three. Now, I don't have the time to give a total exposition or explanation of all of these verses and all of this passage, so we're going to have to move pretty quickly because I want to really come down on one particular portion of this passage, this portion of God's Word. Wherefore, holy brethren, verse verse 1, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Let's just begin right off and say these were Christians. These were Christians who had been called to be Christians set apart in this world. They were holy Christians, holy brethren. Consider, focus your attention upon the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Verse 2. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all of his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who had built a house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his house. Now, we've got a contrast here between Christ and Moses. Christ, again, is the one who's greater and superior to Moses. Why? Because Moses served in the house which Christ built. As God, he built it. Furthermore, as a son, Jesus Christ was over the house. Moses, as a servant, merely served in the house. Therefore, Christ is greater in relation to the house. When it comes to the house and those who live in the house, they have greater responsibility to Christ than they have to Moses. And then we read in verse 6b, the middle part of 6b, or 6 Whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end? Now, you can obviously tell that the whole, the whole key to this passage is the word house. What's it mean, house? What's he referring to here when he says Moses' house and Christ's house? And whose house are, are we, or ye? What's he driving at? Well, the word house is a reference to, or could be translated, the word household. A reference to a small community made up of a family and servants, all of whom, whether they be a son or a daughter or a servant, worked and served the needs of the whole family under the leadership of the head. To be a member of a household, whether a father or a son or a daughter or a wife or a servant, meant that you lived together, you associated together, and you worked together and you served together. You lived in the same place. Now, in this context, the Apostle is saying, we are His house if we continue, or if you continue to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing the hope firm unto the end. Now, many think that this is a reference to the fact that if a Christian, quote, Christian, falls away and discontinues believing in Christ and having confidence in God and having no joy about the second coming, then... It's obvious that he was never a Christian to begin with. In other words, some take this as a perseverance of the saints. They say that if a saint does not persevere, then truly he's not a saint. I don't believe the passage is teaching this. I believe that a household, in God's sense, is a household made up of the family of God, and that every member in the family of God is a servant in God's house. God has called us together into a house, a local church It's just a small microcosm of the larger house, the universal church, the whole program of God to work in this world and serve and minister His Word. The Apostle Paul said that in Ephesians, he says, We're no longer strangers and aliens, but now we have been made of the household of God. Peter said, We have become living stones in the house of God or in the temple of God. The whole idea of Scripture is that every Christian has been placed into the house of God at his point of faith in Christ. Now, it's not talking about his eternal life. It's talking about his position in the house. And as a result of being in the house, he's called upon to serve the needs of the house and the family under the leadership of the head. Now, if a Christian, as in this case, begins to lose confidence in God when he goes through suffering, or tribulation, as many people do. They throw up their hands and they say, well, if that's the way God plays the game, I don't want anything more to do with Him. If that's the way things are and that's the way people are in the church, then I don't want anything else to do with them. If we begin to lose confidence in God and God's ability to work and to rule, and of course along with that comes a loss of hope in Christ's return, we begin to look down or look into our own life their heart of joy is suddenly lost, they have no more confidence in God, the joy is taken out of their life, and a joy about tomorrow as well as a joy about the future, then what do they do? They leave. They leave the house of God. That's what these Christians were doing. Now, they hadn't all done it yet. Some of them had. But most of them were thinking of leaving or had already left in their hearts, although visibly and physically they were still in in attendance. And he says, if you don't continue in your confidence in God and you don't have that joy that that looks forward to tomorrow and to the future, then what is going to happen is that in your heart you're going to, to say, God, you're going to walk out the door, you're going to slam the door, and you say, God, I quit. I've had it. I've gone through enough. It's paramount to just walking out and saying, "That's it." They had left or wanted to leave the household of God in their heart. And God was moving them out of Judaism. He was moving them away from the Jewish faith and they in turn were saying, I'm tired of being moved away from the Jewish faith and experiencing trouble, experiencing suffering, experiencing persecution. I'm going to leave the house of God and I'm going back to the house of Moses. And when a person leaves, then he's no longer part of the physical house. He's no longer part of the visible house. When he leaves in his heart, he's really not functioning as a full member of the house. Now, to apply this where we live, and that is, as I look out and see everyone here as well as myself, I know that God has a purpose and a plan for each one of our lives. And He, the minute we become a Christian, God begins to move us in a direction that He wants us to go as part of the house of God. We begin, of course, first of all, by giving public profession of our faith in Jesus Christ. Christ taught clearly, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. The idea of confession, of openly professing Christ, is very important in Scripture. But that was always backed back with a second thing in Scripture in the New Testament, and that is baptism. Christians, as they began, as they began their walk with Christ, the very first thing they did to openly mark them as Christians was baptism. And when they were baptized... Then they were severed from the Jewish community. That marked them as a Christian openly. The New Testament knows nothing of of unbaptized Christians. Then after they were baptized, they began to meet faithfully, regularly, from week to week, day to day, with the believers in their particular locality. They plotted and they worked and they organized ways of reaching their community for Christ. God all the while moving each individual as well as each local church as well as His whole body of believers moving them on a course. Now God is doing the same thing with you and with me and with our church and with the body of Christ today and the whole world. He is moving us all on a course. We come step by step by step to basic decisions we've got to make. Sometimes making that decision may cost us something. Being baptized may cost us some embarrassment. I don't think it does, but some do. Coming to church may cost us something in the way of of enjoyment of our own luxuries and entertainment centers at home. Serving faithfully may cost us time outside to prepare and to work. But God, all the while, is causing us to come to these places in our life where we must make decisions and decide whether we're going to go on with God or stop and say, God, that's it. I'm stopping right here. I'm going no farther. This is all the farther I'm going. I've accepted Christ as my personal Savior in my heart, and that's it. I'm going to be a silent Christian. I've been baptized. I come to church regularly, but I'm not going any further. I'm not going to serve. To know what God is asking.